Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Good morning, everybody. You can be seated. If you're the type likes to follow on an actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to get there in just a second. And to, to my nation's family in Bunbury and Port Kennedy and Belmont and Scarborough, and especially all of our people that are joining us online, you're so welcome here. My name's Shane, and unfortunately, I get to be a part of the nation's family. And uh, when, when they bring me in, they ask me to open the Bible, and I take that really seriously. Anytime we do that, we want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience here today as well as in all of our campuses. Now, if, if you're in Bunbury or Belmont or Port Kennedy or Scarborough on, online, you can always have the opportunity to go to my website and get our resources downloadable. That's perfectly right there. If you're, if you're here in Marie, um, we have a table set up with USBs and audio and video with our teaching resources on it. Um, we use the profit from that to fund our missions in the world. We believe we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so uh, so we use that. Our missions of choice are is our children's homes that service mentally handicapped children in China, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. So all I'm asking you to do is on your way out, um, come let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God. And so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothes, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids. I think that's a pretty good, it's, it's a pretty good trait. All right, so <clears throat> this morning I want to talk to you about Jesus. Um, because I figured, hey, well, it's, a, it's the best topic we could talk about. And, and I don't mean like as a throwaway line, like we're going to talk about Jesus. I mean, like this will be uh, the most important message I'll ever speak to you. And um, I, I can't wait to do it because I think that the temptation of the church is to use our energy in tangential things instead of the main thing. I, I want to free you from the trap of having to be known for your opinion about climate change or sex or health or politics or amateur predictions of doom. Um, Christians aren't supposed to be known for that. Have a conviction about any of that. Have an opinion, a conviction. Certainly live by your conviction. Put put it on a flag. Just make it a little flag, a little toothpick flag. Let, Let the main flag be our belief in Jesus as evidenced by our love for our fellow man. Um, and so Jesus is, is who we're about. And, and I actually believe that if the whole world converted to how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, and how Jesus applied scripture, I think the world would be a better place. I, I think every Christian in the world should be willing to ask this question. If the whole world converted to how I'm thinking about God, would the world be a better place? And if, if the answer is no, then there's a problem with how we're thinking about this. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about Jesus, the human being. So let me, let, me give you, let me give you a 15 second disclaimer. I affirm the divinity of Christ. I think the fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ. I think Jesus Christ is the fullness of God incarnate. I think there's no other railway to understand God than through the person of Jesus Christ. I affirm the divinity of Christ. I take it so seriously. I did a 10 part Christology course at a university level that's on that table about the implications of the divinity of Christ. I affirm the divinity of Christ, however, I also affirm that Jesus was fully human. Orthodox Christianity from the beginning has been Jesus was fully human and fully God. And I want to talk to you about the human part. You might be thinking, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. If we only see Jesus as God, then we run the risk of rationalizing not living how he taught us to live, right? So it goes like this. Hey, come on, man. Come on. Seriously. Seriously. Jesus taught us to treat our enemies better than that. You're like, I know. I know. But that was easy for him. He was God, right? No, he was also fully human. And I want to talk to you about that. And Jesus in his humanity was a rabbi. How do I know he was a rabbi? Because they called him rabbi. I know. 
boom, right? Um, rabbi was a special title that only, only very few people ever got. In the whole Bible, as far as I know, there's only three people called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That is it. You never see Rabbi, G, Rabbi James, Rabbi Paul. You, you see Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Gamaliel. You never see Rabbi Peter, Rabbi James, Rabbi John. No, no, no. Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul. And it was, the, it was the highest honor in all of Israel because it meant that we trust you to teach the scripture faithfully with integrity and honesty. In a world where only 3% of people could read, if you're in the 97% of people that can't read, you've got to trust the person who can read to be honest about what it says. This is why when Jesus shows up at, in rural areas, what's the first thing they do? They're like, oh, great, a rabbi's here. Get him a scroll. Someone can read the scripture to us. And, and rabbis were like highly honored people. And rabbis had disciples. And for us at Nations Church, if you were to dumb it down to one sentence, we are disciples of a rabbi named Jesus. The movement was at first called the way of Jesus Christ. Later, it got changed to Christianity because Christianity is easier to say than the way of Jesus Christ. But, but it's about people. Christianity was never about going somewhere else. Christianity was all about, hey, how can I see the world how Jesus saw the world? How can I see God how Jesus saw God? And how can I apply scripture the way Jesus applied scripture? And I want to talk to you about the implications of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus today. And my hope is, is to free up every good-hearted person within the sound of my voice to not have to be known for all the tangential things, that being known for our faith in Jesus and our love for our fellow man is enough to be compelling in this world. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus calling his first four disciples, and it's strange at best. This is Matthew chapter four, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, two, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Now, if you're gonna try to take notes, that's pretty important. They were fishermen. Come follow me. Second really important phrase, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Now, that's a sales pitch that at best needs some work. It's vague, right? First of all, fishing for people is not that compelling. It's actually a very strange metaphor. And secondly, follow me is a sales pitch that needs a little bit of work, right? There's no details in it. Like, follow me where? Where are we going? When are we coming back? What's going on? But you have grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch was vague. Like, look, if you're married, how does that conversation conversation go, right? You come home and she's like, hey, sweetie, how was your day? I quit my job. What? Yep, quit my job. Why? This guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought it was a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? He didn't say that either. He just said, follow me. And I thought, okay, right? It's just bizarre. You, you would think you might have two guys down on their luck and they're going to give this a try. But, but then he has remarkable success with this incredibly below average sales pitch. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Four for four, grown people, leaving everything they know to follow a guy on a two-word sales pitch. Then he goes five for five. Here is the fifth disciple. This is Mark chapter two, a guy named Levi who changes his name to Matthew. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. He liked the lake. And a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. So Levi gets up and follows him. 
a whole crowd, and Jesus picks one guy. Follow me. What's going on there? What would possess five for five and eventually 12 for 12 people to leave everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch has no details? And when I learned this, it changed my life. And I'd like to share it with you. And hopefully this is gonna make Jesus a whole lot bigger than you ever thought, the Bible a whole lot better than you ever thought, and the resurrection of Christ the fundamental way of seeing the world. I hope that's all of our experiences today. See, to understand this, you gotta understand Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the highest honor was to be considered a rabbi. But at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. It's kind of like this. How many boys in Perth grow up wanting to play in the AFL? All of them. How many of them are gonna ever actually play in the AFL? Almost none of them. Why? Because they're not that good. Only the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite get to play at the highest level. At some point, every boy in Perth is told, I'm sorry, you do not have what it takes to play at the next league. Go back and earn a living at whatever you want to do. But the best of the best of the best make it. That's why every 45-year-old man in Perth has a back-in-the-day story, right? <laughs> like, I was awesome back in the day, right? But then I hurt my knee, right? 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 And maybe... Maybe, maybe, but probably it's just you weren't that good, right? And, and don't, don't be offended by that. Most people aren't. It's okay. There's only one Steph Curry in the world. You can only get so far. It, it was like that being a rabbi. Everybody wanted to, but at the end of the day, you had to be pretty elite to make it. Now, what I'm going to do is in the next three minutes, I'm going to try to explain what it would have taken Jesus to become a rabbi. And um, it's pretty, pretty harrowing, so pay very close attention. Here we go. Ready? In order to become a rabbi, first of all, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. That was your first criteria. You had to memorize the entire book of Leviticus before the age of six. How many of us are disqualified already? We're, we're kind of done. Like, all right, I'm not doing that, right? Now, if you memorize Leviticus by the age of six, it qualified you to go to school, right? There were two schools. The first school was called the Bet Safar. The word's going to come up on the screen. The Bet Safar. Bet is house or, or, or school, Safar book, right? So it's literally the school of the book. The school of the book lasted from six to 12, and your job in the Bet Safar was to memorize the whole Bible at that time. The whole Bible at that time was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you memorized the entire Torah by the age of 12, it qualified you to take a test. To qualify to take the test, you had to memorize the whole book, which tells you that the book, that the test was not a mastery of content. It was based on your ability to ask questions about the Bible in order to keep a conversation about God going. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their answering questions, but their ability to ask questions to keep people journaling. Th think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, what was he doing? He was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you got to go to the next school. If not, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best get to go to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. The word Talmud in Hebrew is disciple, basically discipleship school. In discipleship school, it lasted for 18 years, from 12 to 30. It was five stages long. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call the stages stage one, two, three, four, five, right? And the idea was is that if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage 
Yes, yes. Then two, two, three. Three to four, four to five. If at any point you fail, you're told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best, keep going and graduating to stage five. If you've ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30, he reappears, and everybody's calling him rabbi, this is why. Now, at 30 years old, everybody graduates. Everybody's now rabbi. The only thing left to decide is what kind of rabbi will you be? There were two types of rabbis. There were rabbis without authority, and there were rabbis with authority. Now, most 99.9% of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of the best of the best, the real, once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would say, no, 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 that is a rabbi with authority. Now, let me teach you the most important word I'm going to teach you today. It's going to come up on the screen. This is the Hebrew word for authority. The word is samika. All right. Now, in all of our campuses in Bunbury and Belmont and Port Kennedy and Scarborough, and even if you want to try this online, I want you to say this out loud with some gusto, okay? The word sounds like this, samika. All right, let's try that. Ready? Go. Samika. All right, let's raise our energy about 20%. Let's try that again. Ready? Go. Samika. Now, if you want to sound Jewish, you got to add a little thing at the end. It looks like this. All right? So, so let's just try that. It just sounds like this. All right, ready? Three, two, one. All right, let's try that again because that's just fun to do. Ready? Three, two, one. All right, now let's put the two things together and it sounds like this. Samika. All right, let's try that. Ready? Go. Samika. Right. So there were rabbis without Samika. And there were rabbis with Samika. That was so, this, everybody's like, this one guy over here is like, huh. <laughs> now, a rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same. He was, he, was, uh, he was a rabbi, but he had to teach the Bible the same way his rabbi taught him. Now, a rabbi's way of teaching scripture was called his yoke. A rabbi's yoke was his summary statement on what he allowed what he, what, and what he did not allow. It's called binding and loosing. What you allowed, what you didn't allow. Like your basic, think of it this way. A rabbi's joke was his summary statement on how to see the world, how to see God, and how to apply scripture. It was basically that. And if you were a regular rabbi, you had to teach the yoke of the rabbi that taught you. But if you were a rabbi with authority, it meant you could make up your own yoke. You could start your own movement. That way, every yoke in Israel was somehow traced back to some rabbi with authority. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated, they baptized you, right? Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. Now, in your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be considered a rabbi with authority. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like God was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but a rabbi with Samika. Which means he can now make up his own yoke. 
And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. <laughs> Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. It doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke. The key is the word my. For Jesus to say, this is my yoke, he had to have authority to say something new. Imagine a world where a new rabbi came along whose burden was easier and his way of living was lighter than what everyone had ever heard before. You would have crowds of thousands flocking to hear this new way to live that changed the world for the better. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Now, now once you graduated, you had to go get disciples. Now think about it, follow me here, right? Where would you go get disciples? You'd go to the Bet Talmud, and what would you find? You're a 30-year-old rabbi, and you would find pre-vetted 12-year-olds. Pre-vetted, people who'd memorized the whole Bible, they'd prove they were intelligent, smart, disciplined, passionate. You didn't have to ask any of that about their skill. You only had to have one question. The only question the new rabbis would ask is, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed that they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words, follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy wanted to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me, but all of them only ever heard, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But this new rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find disciples. Where does he go? He goes to the lake. And who does he find? Fishermen. Hang on, if they're fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And Jesus is like, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? They had longed their whole life to be qualified for, by a rabbi. That is the yoke of Jesus Christ. The yoke of Jesus Christ finds a way to qualify disqualified people. That is the yoke. Of our rabbi. Why are they falling? Why are they falling out of boats? Well, it, it would be like if a 34-year-old washed-up AFL player got a call from the West Coast Eagles and they say, We got a spot for you. He's leaving everything. <laughs> right? Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. First four disciples? Fisherman. Fifth disciple. What was his job? Tax collector. Hold on. Where, where was he? Where was he a tax collector? At the lake. Hold on. If you're a tax collector at the lake, who, who have you been taxing? Fishermen, right? <laughs> Awkward, right? Oh, oh, we're going to find out right now. Do you four have what it takes to follow me? Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years? And let's go change the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I believe that would change the world. Now, once a rabbi had his disciples, here's what they did. They did walking training. Literal. That you wanted to walk just like your rabbi walked. You, you could always tell which, remember Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple if you walk how I walk. In another place, he says, they'll know you're my disciple by your love. Not by your opinion about climate or sex or politics or health. If you'd rather be known as a liberal voter than a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known as a labor voter than a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known for your opinion about climate change than your following of Jesus is evidenced by your love for your world, I think we've missed the point. You want to walk like Jesus walked. And when you had walking training, you did it in a line. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day was the line leader, right? That's just like now. 
And the rabbis wore these special shoes. And what it would do is it would throw dust up. And, you, and the, so the line leader would get covered in the dust of his rabbi from his waist down. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wipe off. It was dust you wanted to show off. It was an honor to be covered in the dust. It told the whole world, I'm the one following the closest behind him, right? So you'd go back to temple or synagogue and you'd, you'd hope people notice. You'd be like sticking your hips out, right? You'd be like, hey, man, check out my dust, right? It was like that. And here's the thing, right? You, you'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues, the dust of your mom, the dust of your dad, my personal favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. The hope for the world is that we're all covered in the dust of our rabbi, because whatever we're covered in, that's what we'll cover people in. It's a problem, which leads me to this question. Unless you've been given special samika and you haven't, all of our authority is in Christ, correct? Then we have no right to change his yoke. Here's the question for the morning. Have any of us changed his yoke, called it Jesus, and wonder why people reject it? I know it's rare to pray in the middle of a sermon, but I think it might be a second, and it may be appropriate to take 12 seconds and be quiet and pray a prayer from our heart that sounds like this. Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. May no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. Please forgive me for changing your yoke. We don't have any right to change his yoke. My question is, have we done it? People don't tend to reject Jesus. They reject a certain image of Jesus presented to them. And that's the problem. I love the yoke of Jesus Christ. I love how he taught us to apply scripture. Like, like there's this one time. There was this lady and she was caught in a sex sin says literally in the act of adultery. So this lady is caught in the act of a sex sin. Now the question is, is how should a Christian respond when someone is caught in a sex sin? How should they do it? If we're following our rabbi, how did our rabbi respond? So they bring this lady to Jesus. Now I wanna make sure you're following me here. Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with, yes. So they need someone with authority. They bring her to Jesus and, and they say, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. We have a Bible verse, in other words. We have a Bible verse proving our point of view. The Torah says, stoner, what's your yoke say? Jesus is in this conundrum. He doesn't want to stone the lady, but he's supposed to keep the thing, right? So he's like, ah, oh, right, ah, uh, cool. The Torah says, stoner, okay, great. The Torah says, stoner, so my yoke says, stoner, there. I've kept it. Oh, wait a minute. I have Samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. So the Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw rocks unless you're perfect. Right? And it's this rabbi kung fu moment. Right? Everybody, everybody goes away. They, they, they drop their stones. He looks at the lady and he says, lady, don't tell me what you did. Don't, don't, oh, no, no, no. Just, hey, where are your accusers? She looks around and she says, they're not here. He says, great, then neither do I condemn you. Why? The Torah says to stone someone caught in the act of adultery, but the Torah also says you can't throw, the Torah also says that you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this question. 
The yoke of Jesus looked at someone caught in the act of a sex sin and refused to condemn them. Have we changed that yoke? Could your yoke do that? My yoke couldn't. I grew up in an old school Pentecostal holiness church. They actually added the word holiness to Pentecostal as if Pentecostal isn't enough. <laughs> My grandmother never cut her hair in her life, never wore makeup in her life, never wore jewelry in her life, never went to a movie in her life, never had fun in her life. <laughs> I, I remember three times, this is not something I heard, I witnessed it, three times where they made someone caught in a sex sin get up in front of everybody and be shamed. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. Those people left the church and then the church said, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they did not. They rejected that image of Jesus presented to them. The church changed the yoke and called it Jesus. That is not okay. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. What's his next line? Now go and sin no more. We reverse it. You better stop sinning so God won't condemn you. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, because I'm not going to condemn you, let the grace of God be the technology that empowers your heart change. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, not the fear of punitive punishment. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of our rabbi was in the Old Testament too. Um, it's almost like God was always qualifying disqualified people. Just brilliant. There's this great passage. We won't read it. It's called Hebrews 11. They call it the Hall of Faith. You'll recognize it immediately. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Moses. By faith, Samson. By faith, Jephthah. By faith, David. By faith, the heroes of the faith. Go back and read their stories. They all made mistakes with zeros attached. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. And it says he greatly profited while she suffered in the harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we say about Abraham. If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would we welcome him or start a blog about his mistakes? By faith, Isaac did something similar. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You had this leg sticking him out of the sand. God said, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundation of all scripture. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. Samson? David had 700 women. 700 women. 700. David was dating the entire town of Alchemos. You know, there are Christian denominations that in their written bylaws would never let David preach from their stage. But they open a book David wrote, call it the word of God and fail to see the hypocrisy in that. By faith, Solomon. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand. Hello, Rockingham. <laughs> right? Right? Imagine that, imagine that conversation. Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> Let's write a book together. Right? God was always, always Old Testament and then perfectly revealed in Jesus, finding every way to qualify a disqualified person. And Jesus taught us how to apply scripture. And I think we've got to get back to it. Jesus' theory of application of scripture is do not obsess about being right about the one rule you found. 
God loves people more than the rule you found. Obsess about fulfilling scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is there a Bible verse that says stone adulterers? Yes, there is. And it's in context. And you can't play that game. Oh, you understand the context. No, it says if someone's caught in a sex sin, kill them. Absolutely, it's in there. But Jesus started a movement that didn't obsess about being right about that. He obsessed about fulfilling scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think if the whole world converted to that yoke, starting with Christians presenting that yoke that way, I think the world would be a better place. There's this, there's this one time Jesus went to a prostitute's house. And, and look, this is awkward because in the first century at a prostitute's house, this was business. Jesus is between customers, right? Which leads to this question, would there ever be a worse place to run into Jesus? You imagine like Jesus is in the foyer and you're in the back room, you know, and you come out, right? And you're like, you're like oh, Jesus. Hey, man, I was just here to use the toilet. <laughs> and it says that the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it, all your sins are now forgiven. What do you see in Jesus Christ? You don't see all these rules to come to him. You see, if you move one millimeter towards him, he's rushing the rest of the way towards you. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I love the yoke of our rabbi. I could talk about it all day, but, but I won't. I'll, I'll choose two more stories, one from the Bible and one from my personal life. Um, there's this throwaway line in the Bible. It, it just kind of, it's quick. It, I don't mean it doesn't matter. I just mean it's so quick. You just, you just read over it, right? It's in Matthew. It says, so Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took his disciples to, like, ah, blah, dah Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Okay, all right, so just quick geography lesson. Today, from where Jesus lived to Caesarea Philippi is over an hour drive in a motor car on a proper paved road. You didn't just kind of meander on by Caesarea Philippi. That would be like on purpose walking from here to Rockingham or rock from here to Mandora, something, something absurd, right? You just wouldn't just accidentally walk to Caesarea Philippi. That's number one. No, number two, um, Caesarea Philippi was the worst place of imaginable. Um, whatever the worst thing going on in West Australia is tonight, it is Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi um, was the worship, it was the headquarters of the worship of the goat god Pan. Um, actually, today, it's not called Caesarea Philippi, it's called Panaya, the city of Pan. Uh, Pan was this goat god. It was, uh, it was just a, a horrible, horrible place. I've been there. I've been to Caesarea Philippi. I actually took a photo of the center of town. Let me show you the photo. It's going to come up on the screen now. This is the photo. This is Caesarea Philippi. If, if you're wondering why that picture is of such high quality, it's because I took it myself. <laughs> <clears throat> Photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms in the bottom left of their photos. <laughs> I nailed it. This was the, the center of Caesarea Philippi. And, and because of the potential of children in, in the room or on the stream. I, I, I wanna be historically accurate, but I don't wanna be gross, so I'm gonna have to talk in code, okay? And I, I need the adults to follow me. Pan was a goat god who received worship through outdoor public expressions of fertility rituals. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. And just to give you one more code here, uh, that, that platform right there, 
Um, if you go there today, there's a big billboard. It says, this is the court of Pan and the nymphos, okay? So, so underclassed boys were kidnapped from their villages and forced to worship there. Um, yeah, I know. Like the worst, hey. Like never buy into the lie the world's getting worse. Oh, you believe how bad this world's getting? Compared to when? That? Look, whatever, look, if the Apostle Paul woke up today in West Australia, he'd think he was in heaven, right? He'd be like, who owns you? You're like, what? Who owns, we don't own people. What? what? Who runs the country? A guy named Albo. (laughs) Where's Albo's temple? Where do we have to worship him? No, 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 he doesn't think he's God, he's elected, you know? Like, 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 look, whatever your problem is with Albo, he's not Nero, and it's nothing compared to that. Oh, by the way, that, that cave was called the entrance and exit to hell. And so what the priest of Pan said was, if you don't worship Pan properly, he'll, he'll open up the, the gates of hell and swallow you into it, right? And so they forced these people to debase themselves, right? Unbelievable stuff, legal, systematic terror of underclassed people, horrible things, horrible Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip here. I'd have been fired for sure. And he has to focus them. Remember the story? He's like, Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus went into that nonsense and he didn't condemn them. He didn't create poorly constructed memes talking down to them. He's like, wait a minute, you're acting like that because you're scared of this? And Jesus stood over the gates of hell and said, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox. I was awesome at it back in the day. I hurt my knee, you know. I won the Southeastern Regionals two years in a row, qualified for the U.S. Open. I qualified high enough in the U.S. Open to qualify for the NASCAR World Championships, okay? I, I could fight back then. That was more karate kid stuff. Stop, point. Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off. It's a whole other thing. Uh, but I, I, I could fight by then. My mom was one of these moms. Like, remember the VHS camcorders you had to hold on your shoulders, you know, my mom? So, so all my friends came over to watch the U.S. Open fight, you know? And there was a guy in my neighborhood named Kenneth Brown. And Kenneth was a, a, a freak of nature. I am six foot two, 87 kilos as I stand before you right now. And if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. Um, <laughs> Kenneth was six foot two, 95 kilos in like the eighth grade. Like in fourth grade, we'd go to recess. He'd shave, you know. <laughs> Never occurred to me he'd failed five times. We, I just thought we were the same age. So, so he shows up and he says, Shay Willard, I think I can whoop you. I said, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm not fighting you. He said, I bought boxing gloves to prove it. Well, boxing's different. He can't take me to the ground. So I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown and I beat him after death. I was fast, he was slow, I was skilled, he was not. <laughs> I couldn't hurt him, he's huge. And, and he tried to end it with one right cross. But the problem was he was so slow, it was like <laughs> I actually had time to think, I'll move, right? He, he finished throwing the punch, he was off balance, he was like this, you know. And never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. 
I've never hit a human being this hard. It's a perfect shot right on the base of his pen. Bam! I just stood over him. Never hit anybody that hard. He, he caught his balance, though. Now he's mad. His face turned red. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. <laughs> How many of you know you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? I forfeited that day. You know, the Apostle Paul said the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross. Oh, pray for your enemies. Bless them. Don't just love your friends. Pray for people who use you. Pray for people who, inju who unjustly defile you. Hey, dude, hey, can you do that with 39 lashes? How about some nails in your hand? How about a crown of thorns? And they beat him 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 and he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. That's why any message of Jesus, it's like if you don't do something, Jesus is gonna, no, that's not the message of Jesus. Even if you have a 25 foot cross over the top of the building. The message of Jesus is I'm going to love you to change you all the, even if you kill me, this is what's going to happen. They, you can't do more to a man than killing. And what happened after Jesus died? Well, no one knows. How would you know what happened? Except for the fact that evidently he told Peter that he went to hell and he didn't condemn the people in hell. He evidently preached to them. And this is how I picture it. I picture Jesus walking into hell and looking Satan right in the eye and saying, boy, is that all you got? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No, 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 no. I'm stuck here three days. And when I get out, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied me in my time of need. Because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. And so, my brothers and sisters, maybe we should stop and ask, have we changed his yoke? Have we taken authority that is not ours to take? Do we really believe that the yoke of Jesus is enough to change the world? May we be strong enough and courageous enough to believe that his way, even if it makes us uncomfortable, is still the best way to live and see the world and apply scripture. And it would change the world for the better. Who do we need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Where have we upheld our authority in a way that we shouldn't at all? So Lord, would you forgive us for changing your yoke. I would encourage anybody in the sound of my voice that if you're considering giving your heart to Jesus today, I would love for you to do that. His way is the best way for your life. Let him rewrite your story to a better narrative. And for everybody that follows Jesus, I, I pray that you'd give us the courage, Lord, to, to never change your yoke that no one would ever reject you because of the way we're presenting you. Would you look this way for all of our family in Belmont and Port Kennedy and Bunbury and Scarborough and online and everybody here live. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I hope you laughed a bit. I hope you cried a little bit. I hope you were challenged a lot. I hope you were filled with faith that the way of Jesus is enough to change the world. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Thanks for listening to the Nations Church podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.